It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Palmerbet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight up screamer. Download our app today and enjoy straight up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos, and same game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1 800 858 858. Thorpe is coming in gold and a world record. Ian Thorpe, the birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Australia is back on the biggest stage. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. everybody and welcome to the very first episode of This Is Your Sporting Life for 2021. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. And to open up the year, we're speaking to a man whose dedication and unrelenting desire took him from the Melbourne suburb of Endeavour Hills to the bright lights of the world's premier basketball league, the NBA. The first Australian to be taken with the number one pick in the NBA draft, Andrew Bogut played for five clubs as a 213 centimetre centre, winning an NBA championship with the Golden State Warriors in 2015. A three-time Olympian, he returned to finish an enormously successful career here in the NBL with the Sydney Kings before retiring in November 2020. It's a great pleasure to welcome him. G'day, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. How are you going? We're well. Growing up in Melbourne and being in- interested in sport, Andrew, you're, you're almost born, as you know, with a footy in your hand, and you were no different. But when did your relationship with basketball start and how? Yeah, I, I guess it's started kind of late in my childhood. Um, I didn't play a lot of organised sports, you know, when I was six, seven, eight, nine. It was kind of a big um, hit kick because I was showing my age, which is now off kick, obviously. did that when I was a young fellow. And a few other things here and there. And then organised basketball for me started around 10 or 11. But I'd kind of fallen in love with the game uh, probably at a, the age of around eight or nine um, where I was just shooting my dad's factory. He was a mechanic in a mechanical workshop, and Albies next door had uh, drew a, a hoop into the wall. Um, they use it generally to dry bits and pieces that they spray painted off cars, you know, little little parts to get it dried out in the sun. And I started throwing a ball through that. I, I don't think it was regulation height, it was just one of those cheap old school rims you could get from Kmart that just had two bolts just swing to a wall. And I think I started throwing a tennis ball, and then a soccer ball, and then a basketball. And um, yeah, I just fell in love with kind of the intricacies of. Of, of the game, really. You lived and breathed the game, didn't you? I mean, but how adamant were you, even from a young age, that you, you were going to make it? Oh, look, I think any kid at a young age doing something that they love thinks they're going to be, you know, playing in the big league one day, or hope. As my kind of adolescence and teenage years went on, it, it, it kind of got a bit more realistic, where I, I probably thought, oh, this is a pretty tough task just to become professional, and had my bumps in the road from you know, 11 to about 15, 16, where I couldn't make first teams even at my local club. So it wasn't a smooth journey for me. I didn't think I'd be a, an NBA player, let alone you know, playing as an Olympian and whatnot. I mean, if, if I could have just made 
the NBL at that point, I would have been more than happy, right? So, yeah, it all kind of came together for me really late. But as a, as a young kid, definitely saw it more as a, as a pipe dream than, than reality. Before we get to some of those setbacks, Andrew, who was the hero growing up? Who was the one that you had on the wall back home? I was always different players in you know, every you know, it'd be 11, it'd be one guy, and then 12 would be a different guy. But I kind of related more towards, I was really skinny and um, really, really light, like a, like a rake essentially as a young kid. So I kind of related more towards like the Tony Kukoc, obviously being from Croatian descent. Um, I really familiarized myself with him because he had a very similar body. He wasn't very, very strong, but just very, very skilled and could do a lot of different things. So he was one guy, obviously followed Luke, Luke Longley's journey a fair bit, um, especially considering he was this. One of the wingest all team, one of the wingest teams of all time. So it was hard to, to ignore what he was involved with, like with Michael Jordan and Scotty Pippen too. So, but like I said, every other year it was kind of a different superstar that you kind of liked, and that was kind of the fun part of childhood. Tony Kukoc, though, I mean, it must have been one of those pinch yourself moments. I'm sure you had many throughout your career, but years later you'd hook up with him, of course, at the Milwaukee Bucks because I think your first year was his last. That must have been special. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, it goes full circle, right? Um, it was only two years before that I was photographed at driving Petrovic's grave in a Tony Kukoc Milwaukee Bucks jersey. So <laughs> it goes full circle, and it was definitely an honour to to be around. I mean, he was he was obviously right at the end of his career, so he was nowhere near what he was you know, in his prime. But he was a, a good kind of veteran mentor for me to kind of bounce things off every now and then. And he was um, he was a fun guy to be around. As you touched on, it hasn't been all beer and skittles, as they say. And as a kid, you were cut multiple times from squads. I think the under 16s at at Dandenong Rangers, you were cut. Waverley, uh, I think you might have been cut too. So you weren't. Any sort of um, foreign, you weren't foreign to setbacks by any stretch of the imagination, were you? No, I definitely wasn't. It was, you know, I, I moved around clubs a few times, cut from the Rangers, under 16, top age. Um, then went to Waverley for a season, then went to Sandringham after that. Um, but yeah, kind of bounced around. And I think that, you know, I wouldn't be here today if the journey was smooth. I truly believe that. I think um, if I was that talented kid, under 12, under 14, I wouldn't be here. You know, most people that play organised sport, if, if you look back to when you were a junior in whatever sport, generally the, the kids that are superstars under 12, under 14, they ever rarely make it into the professional ranks. It's usually kids that um, have to work twice three times as hard as those kids um, that end up developing into professionals. And you, every now and then you'll get a prodigy like a Gary Ablett Jr. or someone like that who's just born to do what they do. But that's very, very rare. There's, there's much more cases of that talented kid at a young age. They ever rarely um, make professional ranks. In your teens, Andrew, you, you know, you go through a phenomenal growth spurt at one point and some of them said you had an attitude problem. But then a, a guy by the name of Sinisa Markovic enters your life. Now, I know this relationship perhaps isn't what it once was but if you can possibly put that to one side just tell us about this man and the influence going back to this point in time that he had on your young career at this stage yeah no he's, there's no doubt he had a huge influence i touched him at i think it's in the first or second um series of my journey podcast on, on my on my podcast where i both and got got really in depth around kind of what was involved and it's kind of hard to get into long form on this podcast because we'll be here all day but yeah he, he long Long story short, he, he saw he saw me playing at a local ref game and funnily enough sat next to my father and um, he just basically said some off the cuff comment of if I train that kid he'd be you know, he'll be a professional and my dad was like, Okay, well, let's do it then, put your money where your mouth is and he kinda was a bit cognizant, you know, of, of his time and said, Oh, I don't know if I can fully commit to it and then my dad's like, Well kinda shut up then if you're not gonna do it and then um, they exchanged phone numbers and I guess what appealed to my dad was that he was he was Croatian Serbian descent so from the homeland and um we get home that night and the phone rings and it was him and he said, you're on, be here tomorrow morning. 
at nine o'clock or wherever it was. That's when it all started. So they were they were, they were tough. They were the toughest, very tough part of my basketball upbringing because the training sessions were just a whole other level. It was, it was we were doing crazy stuff, um, two three hours after school every day. And whenever I had to spend a minute, it'd be stretching, it'd be working out, it'd be training. And yeah, I mean. Without that, I wouldn't I wouldn't be here today. But it was uh yeah it was it definitely wasn't easy. It was it was a hell of a six or seven months. Yeah, it's a fascinating chapter of your journey, no doubt about that. As he's making the AIS squad in two thousand and two, I know that was a, a huge turning point. But I wanted to ask you about college basketball, the Utah Utes. I mean, Salt Lake City is a long way from Endeavor Hills, literally and metaphorically. That must have been a tad scary at the time. It actually wasn't that bad. Um, I did get we were getting off the plane and not knowing who I was meeting, who was picking me up from the airport, didn't really know a soul. I knew two of the assistant coaches who had, who had recruited me. One of them had either got fired or left to another school, and the other one was still there. But he didn't. He was out recruiting, so the guy that picked me up, I'd never met. And it was a matter of getting dropped off to the dorms, never met any of my new teammates or roommates. And so was, everything was new, but I couldn't have picked a better city because um, I guess the concern for parents from Australia is you watch news on TV and there's always something kind of wild going on in America. As we, as we know right now, as we're doing this podcast, there's always something wild going on, going on over there. And I think going to Salt Lake City was a, a much more mellow, calmer city for me to transition into. You know, the Mormons cop a lot of a lot of flack, um, but they're very, very nice people. They have a good soul about them. They're very, very family orientated, and I, I fit in very, very well and was welcomed warmly. So I couldn't have picked a better place. It wasn't a huge, you know, parties and stuff like that, but it wasn't known as a party school and a typical university or college that you'd see in the movies. So that appealed to me as well to try and keep my focus. Yeah, well, just on that, Andrew, obviously the, the college sports scene or the NCAA is dressed up as something of a, of a lavish scene. But for you, the reality is that cash was tight. I think you were dollar to dollar at that stage. And did you, I think I read, did you have a job waiting tables in a sports bar there just to keep it all going? Yeah, I did. Yeah, no, it, was, um, it wasn't a fun time away from the court. Uh, the NCAA, they don't really support athletes as well as they should. I mean, there's an argument, kind of a losing argument in the court of public opinion because most students that go to college have to pay for their tuition and their books. So they're saying, oh, well, you're getting it for free. You're already ahead. But it's like, yeah, but, you know, we, we can't really afford to go out to eat. We can't afford to take a girl out. You can't afford to do the once-off things that you do in college. So, yeah, I moved out. I moved out of campus my second year, my final year there. And by the time I paid my rent and paid petrol, I had no money left. So I think kind of went to my – first I went to the to, to coach and was like, you need to give me some money. <laughs> He's like, we can't do that. It's illegal, obviously. Um, in college sports, you can't get paid. So I said, well, I have no money to eat. Like, they said, have no money to eat. And um, the next best thing was a, a sponsor of ours owned a restaurant. It was called Skybox, downtown Salt Lake City. And every Friday and Saturday night, I do a five-hour shift after a, a hard week of training and wait. So, um, yeah, I do a five-hour shift for both nights. And couldn't serve alcohol, so I couldn't officially be a, a waiter because I was under 21. So all, all my job was, was cleaning tables and being a food runner. So I'd help the waitresses and waiters out. When the food came out on the, on the line, I'd just take it out to tables. So that was kind of five hours straight on my feet. And it made me realize how hard it is to earn a buck. And I then built up, I think I did it by or six or seven weeks before the season started and built up enough in the bankroll to then help me get through the rest of um, college. But I'm going to be honest, like I was, there were times I was eating off, off the dollar menu at Wendy's, which is you know the equivalent to a Hungry Jack's or a Burger King, and I'd have three, four bucks in my pocket and be driving home from class and I'd 
you know, you get three cheeseburgers for a buck, and that, that kind of was the, the reality of what you had to deal with at that time. Oh, gee, three cheeseburgers for a buck's pretty good going, though, uh, Andrew. I like the sound of that. But while while it might have been tough off the court, it was working beautifully on the court. So, obviously, all freshman team honours first up. And then in your sophomore year, you were named National Player of the Year by ESPN and the Basketball Times, among many other gongs as well. And your number four jersey was retired by the Utes uh, in the end. So you must be incredibly proud when you look back on your two years there. I had a great, great time. I think my first year was, was hard because I had one of the toughest coaches of all time in Rick Majerus. That second year was awesome. You know, everything just kind of clicked. I had a new coach who kind of let me do my thing, um, let me play and let me show my talents. And I had, you know, a fantastic year, both statistically and as a team. We go to the Sweet 16 with a team that wasn't even picked to do that well. I don't think, I think we weren't even picked to win conference at that point. So we had a tremendous year. I think we won 18 games in a row at one point during the regular season, which led the country. And the college experience isn't for everyone, but for me, it was, it was fantastic and still probably a part of my life that I cherish most. I think college and the AIS were probably two eras that I really kind of cherish the most more than kind of the professional side of things. And despite having two more years of eligibility, obviously, did you feel that there was really only one place to go? Yeah, I mean, I would have been silly to go back for my third year, um, what would have been my junior year, just because I'd been at the start of that season, I was projected to be a late first round pick. And then by the end of that season, Mm. um, I was was projected to be top five and and no lower. So, you know, you have to be kind of an idiot to, to go go back for another year and risk injury and, and who knows what happens, right? Um, and then not only that, then scouts can further pick apart your game. You might have a down year and it could cost you. We've seen, we've seen players do that at say a full, full journey when they probably shouldn't and it hurts their stock. So I got out of there. I probably wasn't ready, to be honest with you, body-wise. Like, I think I was about 230 pounds at the time, about 100 kilos, which is a little bit over 100 kilos. And I still wasn't, you know, most centers back then are, you know, 115, 120 kilos and still mobile. So I knew I had to put a lot of work in the weight room and, and get a bit stronger, but I just hadn't fully grown into my body. So I knew going into my rookie year, I'm like, man, I'm up against it. I'm not as strong as any of these guys. I'm probably the lightest center in the league at that point. So, but like, you know, I'm not going to pass up that opportunity of being a top five pick and, and then ended up being number one. Thank you. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Well, next, Andrew Bogut. He creates history as Australia's first number one pick in the NBA draft. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with the former NBA star, Andrew Bogut. Andrew, June 28, 2005, Madison Square Garden, New York. The late NBA commissioner, David Stern, announces you as the number one pick to the Milwaukee Bucks. The first pick in the 2005 NBA draft, the Milwaukee Bucks select Andrew Bogut from Australia and the University of Utah. Can you even now put it into words and take us to that moment? Oh, mate, it goes by so quickly, especially, you know, without sounding arrogant, but going first, it goes even quicker because there's some blokes that have to sit in that room for, you know, an hour or 30 minutes for their names called. So it happened very, very quickly for me. I remember just had my parents fly in, had my auntie from Australia, my auntie from uh, Croatia, uh, my grandma from Australia flew out, and my sister and myself, I believe. I think that was a, that was all the people that we had there. And obviously my agent, college coach so all flew out and um i remember like leading into it two days before the draft uh my dad and i went to upstate new york on a, on a fishing trip um down i don't know what river it was up there up north somewhere but um kind of just picked mine off things and the calm before the storm and then you know once you once you got back 
into New York City and there was paparazzi outside the hotel, so you couldn't get in and out of there easy. And then you go to, you go to Madison Square Garden about two hours before the official, official tip-off of the draft starting and, and kind of nervous leading up. And the camera's lights turn on and, um, yeah, you get called straight away. So then as soon as you get drafted, uh, it was a moment of kind of, I didn't really believe it because of the journey I had. Like I said earlier, my, my, my journey kind of all came together, two or three year block where it just came together really quickly. And then I'm, I'm the number one pick, <laughs> like out of nowhere. So I take David Turner's hand then go to the back. And then you've just got all these media stations, about 15 or 20 of them. And you're just going from point to point. And then it was, knock all that out get back to the hotel, rented out a, a kind of a bar, Italian restaurant type thing. And, and I remember, um, I remember not remembering much about that night after that. Cause, um, <laughs> way too many drinks. Almost got, funnily enough, almost got hit by a car on the way back to the hotel. My sister saved me, saved me from that one, <laughs> crossing the road. I do remember that. And then woke up severely hungover and then had to jump on a, on a private jet to Milwaukee um, to obviously meet organisation and everyone within it. I, I am conscious, Andrew, of not prying too much into the personal, but I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is on the public record anyway, but what sort of contract at that stage anyway awaited the number one pick? It was cap, it probably still is. It's capped, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so they're still capped to this day. It's weighted. The number one pick gets the most and then it's slowly weighted down to the 60th pick, obviously. Um, but I think it was a guarantee of, I think, roughly five years, 20 million USD at that point. So for that, you know, being your rookie deal was, you know, you've basically got enough money to, to be okay for the rest of your life. So that was um, coming from a, a working class family who had battles at times financially. It was, it was pretty surreal. Oh, I reckon. And how does one adjust to that? Because as we just spoken about, a few weeks earlier, you're cleaning tables at, at a sports bar in Salt Lake City. I mean, that's a massive adjustment. Yeah, it was. And just knowing the ins and outs of money and what to do with it, all the kind of positives and negatives. The negatives probably outweigh the positives, funnily enough. A lot of people probably would think I'm crazy saying that. But yeah, a lot of new cousins that pop up, a lot of new friends. And then navigating that as a 19, 20-year-old is pretty hard at times. You know, family, family members sometimes put guilt trip on you to, to, to get money out of you and whatnot. So that's, a, that's probably the tough part of the business. But I, I had no idea, to be honest with you. I had no idea about managing money. I had no idea about any of that stuff. I had a financial advisor at the time. And thankfully, later on in my career, I, I went and did some study online to a university in, um, in Melbourne to open uni and Deakin and, and did some stuff, financial wealth management and accounting and whatnot, which has helped me better myself. Early on in my career, to be honest with you, I'd, I had no idea. Like, someone would have taken that out of my account, I probably wouldn't realise for a couple of months, to be honest with you. What do you remember of your first game in Philadelphia against the 76ers with uh, Alan Iverson still going at that point? And you had a very respectable 13 points, nine rebounds, three blocks. But were you running around like a chook with his head cut off? What do you remember of it? Not really, because people forget there was six or seven preseason games before that. Mm. Um, so that I wasn't really that nervous going into that game. I, my first preseason game was against Minnesota Timberwolves. I remember that at Minnesota. And I remember getting on the court in the starting line up and just thinking like I'm finally here so that was kind of that moment for me it was a preseason because it's still a regular NBA game even though it's just a practice game and Kevin Garnett was on that team and whatnot and that was kind of the moment um, you'd probably be referring to well like step foot on that court and it's finally here you've gone through all the bullshit and, and ups and downs of, of juniors and, and AIS and college and, and now you're finally in the best league in the world so once that Philly game rolled around, it was kind of, you know, you're already seven games in essentially, even though they were practice games. So that didn't really affect me too much. You go on to play every game, all 82 of them in your, your debut NBA season. Unfortunately, it would be the only time you do that. And we, we'll get to the injuries later. But can you paint a picture of day-to-day life as an NBA star? The travel, the scene, the hotels, uh, the suitcase life, so to speak. Did it hit you like a ton of bricks or did you... Take it all in your stride, looking back. Oh, when you're young and dumb, you don't know any better, to be honest with you. Um, it's easy when you're single or just 
you know, have a girlfriend at maximum, but I think later on in your career when you have kids and stuff, it becomes much harder. But you don't know what to expect as a young fellow, so you just kind of you know, pull from the neck wherever you have to go and then you figure it out along the way. But yeah, routine's really important. You figure out different quirks. Like I started, I had a, you know essentially a toiletry bag that was just packed for the road. So when I first got to the league, um, I'd, I'd unpack it come home put everything away and then the next day go on a road trip then repack it so just little things like that i started to figure out this is just crazy so i had a i basically had a backpack that was filled with toiletries all my charges for stuff and that backpack nothing ever came out of it at home it just stayed packed so it saved me you know running around before a road trip so things like that you've got to be really organized the thing that really hit me was getting to city sometimes at two three four a.m and having a game that same day so you know, we might play in LA tonight, we might play the Lakers tonight, and then fly up to right after that game. We basically take a bus from the arena to the airport, get on the plane, and then we fly to, let's say, San Francisco, Golden State, where you play the Warriors. And um, yeah, you basically get there at two, three, four in the morning. You have a breakfast meeting that, that later that morning, and then you have a game that night. That's, that's what really hits you because no rest for the wicked. And once the NBA season starts, all throttle. How did you deal with fame, Andrew? Um, whether it be the girls, the sharks out there too. I mean, everyone just wanting a piece of you and all that. Oh, I mean, you make mistakes along the way and you learn from them. There's no, that's a thing with all that. There's no, there's no class. There's no seminar. There's no, you know, the NBA does a little bit with it. They you know, bring some people in with the rookie transition program to try and prepare for that. But no one can really prepare for that. It's one thing talking about it, but when you're in that moment of dealing with different things and snake oil salesmen and women and all that kind of stuff, you gotta, you gotta navigate it. And unfortunately, you gotta, you gotta make some mistakes sometimes to learn from things. And I'm no different. I, I made mistakes throughout my career with, with some of those things. And the most important thing is do you then learn from it? You know, where a lot of athletes get in trouble is they don't learn from those mistakes and they continue to do the same thing and at the end of their career they're broke or they whatever it is they have some issues with family or they're on their third or fourth wife with 15 kids you name it i like to think i learned from my mistakes but i I didn't handle fame well i still kind of don't i don't really like when i'm out and about especially now with the kids and the family i'm out about kind of do things and going from point a to point b and and sometimes you got to realize you know someone never has the opportunity to meet you in person and see you and sometimes you might be kind of in a rush to get somewhere and might brush off as rude, but you've got to kind of sometimes step back and be like, you know, give that person a couple of minutes. But on the flip side, sometimes there's people that don't understand that. Sometimes there's people that think, you know, you're an asshole because you can't sit down and have a beer with them. So it goes both ways. I'm more of the, I was never a guy that was kind of wanted to be in the limelight off the court where I was going and put, you know, put myself in a position to be on TV shows and concerts and all that kind of stuff. I kind of was happy with basketball being my thing and that's kind of where that always lies with me. You were traded to Golden State mid-season 2012 I guess Andrew as Australian sports fans we're often blown away by the ruthlessness of the trading scene in American sports given the control the players still have in in a lot of scenarios here how crazy is it over there particularly that first trading experience for you and the process attached with being traded mid-season. Oh yeah, full on. Like you know, you, that's what you sign up for. Um, change a little bit now. You've started to have players now trying to dictate where they're going to go, and the players hold much more of the power down in the NBA. And that's where it's changed from when I was kind of coming up through league. It was kind of more kind of slighted towards teams and GMs and owners, but now it's kind of gone more player-driven. But yeah, look, you get that call. I mean, I asked put in a trade request at one point for some Milwaukee Bucks. Told that was the lockout year in 11-12, and kind of being a revolving door of a franchise at that point. It seemed like every year I came back to training camp we have eight or nine new guys and you're like man like we just can't build a culture or camaraderie we can't get in sync it's always new faces so i was like look it's just time for, i think it's just 
tough for me to move on, no hard feelings. And I went and told the GM and did it quietly behind the scenes. And um, they were like, look, we're not going to trade you. We don't think we'll get fair value. A good big is hard to find, all that fun stuff. And then two or three weeks later, I broke my ankle. So what was funny about that was the head coach was on the hot seat. The GM was on the hot seat. And they were like, well, Bogus out for a year at minimum. And we're trying to make a playoff push to save our job. So that got me out of there. They, they ended up trading me for Monte Ellis to Golden State. We then actually gave them a playoff push to the eighth seed and helped them their jobs out a little bit. But for me, it was great because I ended up getting out of that into a new situation. But you know, getting to Golden State wasn't all rosy neither. They were in a position that was probably, if not worse, in Milwaukee, where they got a lot of wins on the board the last decade and a lot of players coming through there and no real culture. But remember getting the call and, and you get the call, you're being traded, um, and you've got 48 hours generally to report. So that's how crazy it is. You've got 48 hours to get one suitcase packed, essentially, jump on a plane and be there and, and then leave everything else behind, which you generally leave up to the missus, so her girlfriend at the time, and it's like, all right, pack the house up, and I'll see you in uh, in Golden State within a couple of months. So you leave that on them, and then um, get them down the track essentially. Two days, gee. So where do you leave it when you first get there? You just obviously got to put yourself up at a hotel for the short term. Yeah, hotel. I mean, the NBA does a fantastic job of looking after you and trying to make things smooth as possible. Where it gets tricky is the guys that have kids in school and all that. They usually end up leaving their family and kids in the city that they just were till the end of the season, at least, or till the kids' sports finish. So that's where it gets hard. But yeah. I was lucky at that point because it was just myself and my girlfriend. But um, yeah, I mean, they, you fly in, they put you up in a, in a hotel room, and then in between training sessions and games, you're out apartment or house hunting, trying to find more permanent gigs until the end of the season until you figure something out more permanent. But there's sometimes there's guys that you know get traded mid-season or trade deadlines in February or a normal season, and that would leave you with two or three months left in the season. Most guys, you know, probably coming towards the end of their contract, so they might not be with that team anyway. They'll just stay in a hotel for three or four months and just play it out and then, then figure things out. There's no point finding a lease for three months or even 12 months and then possibly not not re-signing you know, or getting traded again. Yeah, it's a pretty wild scene. Are you with This Is Your Sporting Life? Brought to you, of course, by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Just visit tobinbrothers.com.au. After this break, Andrew Bogut joins a Warriors team that is about to take flight. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with Australia's most decorated basketballer, Andrew Bogut. Andrew, you played at the Bucks, the Mavericks, the Cavaliers, the Lakers as well. Admittedly, a couple of those were for a short period of time. But what made the Warriors a special team? Your arrival in 2012 coincided with their rise to prominence. Did they have something that went beyond the individual talent on the roster? You know, something that couldn't be measured by statistics? I mean, it was a mix of things. I think um, having a guy like Steph Curry finally get the keys and the keys of the team, essentially, then move Monte Ellis, who was then the number one option. A lot of people don't realise you don't move Monte. Steph's probably still that second option, you know, because Monte was an imposing figure and he was kind of the star of that team. So they got him out of there and gave the keys to Steph, which was obviously the smart move. Um, but I think myself getting there and then a year later we get Andre Godala, we had David Lee there. Like, we had a lot of better that had been on bad teams that understood like, hey, I'm cool playing a smaller role or a different role. I might not be the number one guy offensively, but I'm happy to still focus on locking down my guy that I'm guarding, hit the open three or whatever it was, right? So for me, it was ended up being, you know, control the paint, be a defensive presence, be physical, hit people when they come in there, get 10 rebounds and try to block two or three shots. That was kind of my role. You know? James goes right at him, blocked by Bogut. James, bounce pass to Thompson, blocked by Bogut. His third already. Love trying to post up Draymond Green. Blocked again by Bogut. Four rejections. 
in less than eight minutes. If you get a dunk every now and then, fantastic. But free up Steph and Clay as much as possible. And we had enough veterans around those young guys that let them really show their talent. And guys that were happy to do that. That's the hard thing in the NBA. You know, to find guys that I was, you know, a number one option with Milwaukee when I was there for the last two or three years. Andre Iguodala was a number one option in Philadelphia and then a one or two option in Denver. So... You, know, you get the Golden State, it's like, can you leave that at the door and be like, okay, we need you to be a 3-4-5 option for us. We don't need you to be a 1 or 2. We've got Steph and Clay Thompson. We had guys that were okay with buying into that. That was number one. And then number two, we just had good people. You know, the NBA is a tough league at times, and there's a lot of um, two-faced people in that league, both front office, players, coaches, wherever you want to look at it. And that's professional sports probably today, you know, the money involved and whatnot. It does become a team sport. It's still very individualistic because it's... You know, talking about big contracts. We had good people that liked being around each other and, and we had high IQ uh, basketball guys. So you put all that together, then the off-court culture started to build. We started catching up more outside of team mandated activities. So outside of training sessions or plane trips or bus trips, we actually got together, uh, which is very, very rare in the NBA. It just doesn't happen like that. And, and if it does happen, it's usually three or four guys over here and three or four guys over there. And you ever rarely get the whole team on one page. And that was one of the few teams that I was on that, um, you know, we had eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 guys every road trip coming down. The NBA Finals, how big are they? How crazy is that circus? Oh, it's beyond a circus. Like, yeah, I mean, the amount of media in there, NBA is probably the most media-driven league in the, in the world, I would say. The access that they provide to the media and, and vice versa, the access that we have to give the media goes well together. But during the Finals, it's a whole different ball game. Like your routine as a player goes out the window because the media is allowed in for training in the NBA Finals and then you got to do about I think, 45 minutes before a session. you got to be available for media on the court and then it's just a free-for-all. There's media stations set up everywhere. Anyone can talk to anyone and there's probably anywhere from... 50 to 100 people just all jammed on a basketball court just interviewing whoever they want um, and that's every day that's pretty much every day so you know a seven game series can go for 20 days sometimes so you're doing that every single day it becomes a grind and then you're, you're the last two teams left so you know, ESPN Fox Sports News whoever it is everyone's talking about just you two teams so it can get digging at times but that's kind of a peril of, of what you've got to deal with you know it's the biggest league in the world and the last two teams standing. Your Warriors ended up beating the Cleveland Cavaliers in six to win that title. Now, it's the franchise's first title in 40 years. So with that in mind, how does a championship team celebrate in the NBA, Andrew? I'm picturing cigars and lots of them. You're picturing what, sorry? Cigars and lots of them. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we won the championship in Cleveland on a Tuesday night. So <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't a whole lot to do. It's a very small city, uh, for those that don't know, and the Midwest. So I think things closed there at 2 a.m. But we had, we had a, there was a steakhouse connected to our hotel, and we basically booked out the whole steakhouse at 6 a.m., I think it was, and, and partied and did whatever we could. But the real stuff started, I think, when we got back. So we flew back the next morning to the Bay Area. I think that was a Wednesday or a Thursday. And then we had our championship parade on the Friday. So we went on the buses or the floats all around the city. And that was unbelievable. You know, people everywhere, people climbing up light poles and traffic lights and trees. <laughs> it was a kind of something you always remember. And then we were organized. This, is, this goes back to that culture thing. We organized players only to go to Vegas Friday night, Saturday night, come back Sunday. So the players only. So it was just our last time together as a group. Because we know... Even if you win a championship in the NBA, that same roster is not going to be back next year. There's going to be there's going to be movement. There's going to be free agents. You might get back 50, 60, 70 percent of the guys, but not all of them. And that was the case. A lot of our role players moved on. So that was kind of our last time spent to really embrace what we what we had accomplished. And it was um yeah it was a fun time in Vegas. I mean, when you win a championship, I can tell you Vegas looks a whole lot different to the doors <laughs> that open up there. <laughs> people want you. People want you in their night nightclub, and people want you in you know you're sitting with Elon Musk. 
in a, in a private um, lounge at one of the biggest nightclubs at MGM, just stuff like that. The people that you got the opportunity to meet and talk to and rub shoulders with. You know, you go there as a regular Joe in college, like when I was in college, and you're waiting in that line, you get into a nightclub three, four hours till you realize, oh, we're probably not going to get in. Let's just go somewhere else. <laughs> Whereas now it's like you're walking in through the back kitchen to get through the back door of the club, you know, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a lot different than my Vegas experience uh, many years ago, Andrew, but what great memories. Hey, you mentioned the media access before, and it is a relatively constant talking point in Australian sport year upon year. And I guess despite the media microscope over there and the increasingly managed messaging in pro sport, you, I think it's well and truly fair to say, famously somewhat remained yourself. And to some, you're the outspoken and opinionated so-and-so. And to others, you're the refreshing athlete who speaks his mind, refusing to bow to the, you know, the cliche norm. Did, did you ever fear that genuineness could come at a cost? Oh, it has at times. I mean, I've lost lots of deals. I've lost lots of marketing deals from, from, from kind of being opinionated and being myself essentially and I really don't care especially at this point in my career I think um, I'm kind of from the, the ilk of if you ask me a question I'm going to answer it to the best of my knowledge or opinion and I might not I might not be always be right I might not always be wrong but I'm going to give you what I think and that mm. could be about the dumbest stuff in the world but I'm still going to give you my opinion I don't have to be qualified in it um, I might not be right but I think that's lost in today's world I think everything relays back to your PR agency or your agent or talking points about how you answer certain things uh, look a prime example was that when the NBA China thing happened with Hong Kong and Daryl Morey tweeted or commented free Hong Kong and it was a big backlash from NBA China when, when NBA players have been asked about that the whole I don't know enough about the situation you know I don't I don't agree with that because you do know enough about the situation that you're being told by you know the team and the PR agencies don't do not comment on this because it's going to cost us money so I'm not one of those guys some might find that hypocritical because I have made you know my money um, throughout my career to be able to do that but I've also lost a fair bit just from from um the other side of it is the injuries, of course. Now, uh, and a lot of these obviously outside of your control, and you're as educated as anyone when it comes to the physical and mental battles associated with this sort of stuff. And, and some of your injuries were particularly graphic. I mean, how difficult were they to cope with? And the one that comes to most people's mind is obviously the, the fast break dunk attempt back with the Bucks in, in 2010 that, that left you pretty banged up. Oh, no, 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 oh, no, got his wrist. No, no, his elbow. Oh, it's, it's broken. Oh, no. It's broken. It's broken. It's puffed out. Or it's just, or it's just, you know, it's just swollen real fast. You know what? The players are walking away. Both teams' players are walking away with that look on their faces that you don't want to see. I don't want to see this. I can't watch that. I, I'm sorry. That that's just. Well. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean that one was definitely a career changer. I was finally coming into my own. It was my third or fourth year in the league. I really felt good, night in, night out, confident, was scoring well, sixteen and ten a night, doing all kinds of new things and getting my game better. And then you know that obviously changed. Being my right arm, my shooting arm, it kind of affected my jumper mainly, and and even just going to my right hand at times. It was hard, um, but that definitely changed. But look, I'm not going to cry about the career that I had. I mean, I played 800-odd games in the NBA, played a little bit in the NBL, 15 years pro, um, 
numerous Olympics. You would have told me I had that opportunity as a young fellow. I would have slapped you and told you were crazy. I'm very thankful for that, but I've had you know some some definite turning points in my career. But the thing I'm most proud of around my injuries, I've been told I was told twice that I wouldn't wouldn't be able to go on playing at the level that I was playing at. And one was the, the elbow was like, well, we don't know if you're going to get your full range of movement back. It could affect the way you play. You might not make it back. Blah 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 blah. And then the second one was my ankle. I, I had a micro fracture that a lot of people don't know. I, I broke my ankle in Houston and then I had a, a micro fracture, which I didn't know I was going to have at the time. I went in thinking it was just going to be a clean out for the most part. And then when they had the scope in there, they realized you know, there's just some bigger issues in here that we need to do. And that took me probably two years to get over fully. Um, I rushed back from that bit too soon and, and it was just swelling up like a balloon every, every other day. Um, and I almost retired. I think it was what year was that? 13, it was 12, 13, I think. I almost retired at the end of that season just because my ankle just, no matter what I did, it would blow up and I was just becoming very frustrated. But I pushed through that and that's probably what I'm most proud of. You know, I, I knew I wasn't kind of the Andrew Bogart of 2009, 2010 the way I could play and move and, and do all that. I just had to kind of accept that, but I kept continually pushing through, getting my body right, rehab, ISARs, invested a lot of money in off-court stuff that people don't see to be able to play another five, six, seven, eight years, and, and it worked out very well. We're talking to Andrew Bogut on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back shortly with Andrew to get his thoughts on playing with and against some of the biggest names in world sport. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. NBA Championship winner Andrew Bogut is our guest today. Andrew, what was your relationship with Steph Curry like? Oh, great. You know, Steph was um, obviously leader of the team, but um, great guy. One of the few, I would say, superstars that practices what he preaches off the court. He's a a family man and uh, very low-key, doesn't, he's not a guy that goes out a lot and does all that stuff and... He's one of the few that actually actually lives by what he tells media. So I, I had a great time with him. Oh, beautiful ball as Curry lobs to Bogut. He's able to one-hand at home. Uh, big, big poker player as well on our, on our team flight. So I was on the poker table with him every flight, and we built up a pretty pretty good race. Did you have him covered at the tables? I did all right. You know, a good gambler never tells about their, uh, their feet. So I did okay. <laughs> He's enormously gifted, obviously, and according to many, in fact, the greatest shooter the league has, has ever seen. But what sort of work ethic does uh, Steph Curry have to match his talent? He has a big work. It comes in early, stays late, puts up a lot of shots, and, and really works on his game in the offseason to bring something new. That's probably the big thing about the elite scorers in our league. You know, if you, if you have couple of go-to moves. People are eventually going to figure those out. And then in the off-season, you've got to bring something new to the table. And he's a prime example of that. He comes back almost every off-season with something new. And he's probably the, yeah, I would say he's funny. He's the greatest shooter when it comes to the difficulty of shots. Like mm. the, the, the feet set three, almost, he's almost not as good with that one as he is the crossover, crossover, step back, pump fake, and he'll make it. You know, his degree of difficulty on some of the threes that he makes off the ground, definitely. I think he's one of the greatest. Probably him and Harden will probably be the, the two best 
three-point shooters off the bounce. LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Shaq, Allen Iverson, Kevin Garnett, Dwayne Wade, Steve Nash, Dirk Nowitzki. We, we could go on and on and on. And you battled these guys night in and night out. Yeah, I mean, some, some great names there. When you're in the moment, I was never one of those guys to idolize any of those players because I think those guys are sharks, essentially. They smell blood on the water. It's not going to work out well for you. So I'd always try to go in and the mindset of they're human. You know, they do the same thing in the morning that I do when they wake up and they eat the same way and they go to the bathroom the same way and all that kind of stuff. Kind of wasn't, I wasn't one of those guys that were trying to get their autograph before a game. You know? and, and when it did, though, when it did come to occupying the paint in the world's best league, who gave you the most trouble or the most stress or the most a- anxiety? Who did you, not fear, but who had the... Um, you know, the, the antenna up when you were going into battle against them. I think with the NBA is if you don't bring it every night, there's always even a role player can give you can give you the business. But um seen two guys, young Dwight Howard when I was really when I was younger, um, when he was with Orlando, he was a whole other level. He was so physically imposing and there was you know, he was strong, his shoulders were wide, you know, and he just bullied you down there and I still wasn't fully grown into my body at that point that I was later on in my career and funnily enough Towards the end of my career, I felt like I, I handled him pretty well. Early on, he gave me the absolute business. And the other one was Yao Ming, seven six giant from China, but just unbelievable shooting touch. And, and there were some games where you do everything right defensively, position-wise. You do everything you were taught, push him off the block, test, you know, make it tough for him. And once he got in the groove, because he had such nice shooting touch, there was not, not a whole lot you could do, even contesting shots, because he was seven six and he used to shoot it above his head. So he's shooting it basically from the, an eight, eight foot, eight foot and a half trajectory. So, um, yeah, those two guys definitely gave me, gave me some people earlier on in my career. And who did you enjoy playing against? Well, for me, like any Mike D'Antoni coach team for me back in the day was great. <laughs> that was um, the Phoenix Suns and New York Knicks back then because they, they didn't have a huge emphasis on defense and they didn't really care about guys posting up. So they wouldn't really provide a whole lot of resistance. Back when I was in my prime scoring days, I, I definitely had some career nights against We've just had a test cricket series here, Andrew, where sledging has been a key talking point. How prevalent is it in the NBA? It's still prevalent. I mean, it's a professional sport. It happens as much as people don't like it. Context plays a beautiful part in all this. And a lot of times, especially in cricket, the microphone might pick up something that someone says, but not pick up the context or not pick up what was said 20 minutes earlier. You know, So great clickbait for, for the journos out there, but it happens. And, and there's some... At times, the auditory things that are set out on the basketball court. Do I condone it? No, but you've got to understand it's an emotional game, physical. You know, sometimes you get hit and hurt and you might say something silly and that's the reality of it. But it's not just sport. You go to, a, go, to a, go to any mechanical workshop or go to, you know, wherever. Spray paint is some sort of laborer's job and there's banter going back and forth between the boss and the apprentice. And I think it's in all forms of life. Played out a little bit more in professional sport because you catch it on, on a microphone. And the cultural differences between sport there and sport here. I mean, as you, as you would know, in Australia, it's always... Credit to the boys or credit to the girls. And a 10-goal performance isn't possible without my teammates. It's not exactly like that over there, is it? No, it isn't. Like I said, when you've got guys making $30, 40000000 million a year, it becomes very individual. You and I are competing for a rebound, and I've got you know, I've got some sort of bonus where if I reach 10 rebounds a game, I get an extra million dollars. I'm going to try to steal the rebound off my own teammate. You know, mm. That's human nature, and that's the unfortunate reality of it. I think in Australia, we're, we're probably too... I like the Australian team culture first. I think we overdo it here. I think um, a team out of mine, I can't remember who it was. It was a while ago that said, you know, I was giving him a bit of shit for, for pumping his own tires. And um, he said, hey, if you're not your biggest fan, who is? And in the NBA, that, that rings true because if you're not your biggest fan, no one else will be. You know, and it's going to eat you alive. Whereas for me, it was kind of born, it was 
contradictory to what I was born and raised with in Australia, where, like you said, it's always you never take the credit individually. You always put it back on your team. So then I'm stuck in the middle. I'm like, oh, you know, like whereas in Australia, I think we're sometimes too quick to top down, you know, the whole poppy syndrome of, oh, he, you know, he's all about himself because he said he played well, you know. So I think there's a fine balance. I think we're too extreme on, on one side of the fence, where half these interviews that athletes give the credit to the boys, it just irks me because you're just like, you sound like a robot. You know, you just, you just, I can basically play a cassette tape or a CD or an MP3 track of uh, your, your your quote for post game and, and play it for the rest of the season. Um, whereas in America, it's kind of the other side. It's like, yeah, the team couldn't have done this without me. You know, so I think you want to have that balance in the middle and kind of that's where I'm at. April 2018, Andrew, you signed a two year deal with the Sydney Kings in the NBL, obviously. W- was it always the plan to return? and finish your career in Australia? I would say it was always a plan. Early on in my career, it wasn't. Once the kids came around, and it was there was a lot of things going on that year. I was with the Los Angeles Lakers, came off that broken leg with Cleveland the year before, and didn't have a great camp with the Lakers. I kind of came in half-cooked and recovered from that broken leg way too quickly. So I was, I was, you know, I was 50, 60%. So I had an okay camp, but then ended up getting waived. They basically came to me and said, look, we're not going to make the playoffs. We don't have a good record. We have no need for a veteran center to sit on our roster. We'd rather play our young guys. We're going to release you. So I stayed in LA, moved into a hotel, wife and kids went back to Australia. So I was planning on staying there and waiting for you know trade deadline February to try and get a deal um, with the with the playoff contender, which I had a few offers. So I was just saying, look, just wait till trade deadline in case we have a full roster or roster squad. We don't know what's going on, and then we'll we'll sign you after that. And then my grandfather had passed away. I then took a flight back to Australia, went to the funeral, and I was stuck in two lines of like, oh, is there really a point flying back to the States for another month or two of playoff basketball? And then my wife had just been diagnosed with a high-risk pregnancy. So that all kind of happened within a month or two. And it was like, I was in Australia at the time. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to stay here for now because um, it's the right thing to do. And then that's when I kind of was like, well, I'm probably going to try to stay put for the next, at least till pregnancy's over. So why not you know, do it in Australia? And that's kind of what tweaked my interest with, with joining the NBL. And you announced your retirement, obviously, late last year, I think three days after your 36th birthday. I'm assuming the one regret you might have, albeit it was totally out of your control, was obviously to get to a fourth uh, Olympic Games in Tokyo, but uh, that's obviously not to be. Yeah, and I kind of had all my marbles put in that basket. That was always a plan which kind of came into play with the NBL thing. It was, okay, let me play in the NBL for two seasons. Better for my body, um, less games, less travel, one or two games a week, perfect. And that'll keep me then fit for 2020 in Japan. The Warriors thing happened in between that. It put a few miles on the body extra than I expected, but I was still feeling good. So at the end of um, end the last NBL season, the 19-20 season, end of that, I was struggling. Like, I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm barely going to make this camp for Japan. Kind of held together with, with sticky tape, essentially. And I knew I could get there, but it, it was going to be a limp. And, and then I was going to retire right after that. And then once that got called, the Olympics got called for coronavirus, obviously, and then for 2021, if that even goes ahead, I was like, man, if I have to play a whole other season to stay in shape for that Olympics, I was like, I just couldn't do it. Um, I ended up pulling out and, and basically saying, look, I'm done. And I haven't really looked back. You know, I think it's been been a great journey for me. I'm thankful that we didn't go to three Olympics. I would have liked to have been greeting, gotten to my fourth. But I think the body, that extra year playing, I think will add an extra five years toll on my body. And it just kind of the risk versus reward thing for me at that point just wasn't worth it. So what now? I guess more time for family, more time for the car collection and, and your new venture, the Rogues Bogues podcast, of course. Yeah, that's it. 
So it's kind of just been a nice pet project. It's actually been really cool to do the My Journey series on the podcast. I have a few different series, obviously a basketball specific. My Journey is basically my journey. So it's basically from childhood up until now and it goes through different phases of my life um, chronologically, kind of like what an autobiography in a book would read like, but via podcast. So I'm the first person, first professional athlete to do that via podcast. So I try to break some records, but that's been kind of cool to relive my career. Hiring and getting into that podcast straight away has brought back some really good memories. I had a few junior coaches on uh, two and three, catching up with them and talking about old, old war stories has been great. Um, it's been good. And then we do the basketball one, which is starting to get a lot of traction around the world. Having a new co-host in Mike Topio, who's awesome, who I work with, Dallas Mavericks, who was an assistant coach with me there. And just want to tell stories that aren't PR filtered, that don't have an agent tapping me on the shoulder saying, hey, you might lose your sponsorship if you talk about that. And it's like, well, too bad. You know, um, we're kind of at the point, it's, it's rogue at times. It's kind of blunt. It's brutal. Not always politically correct. And, and that's kind of what I want. Exactly. No, well, what a great way to document it all as well. I think it's a great uh, initiative. So Rogues, Bogues, catch it on all your podcast channels. Hey, Andrew Bogut, it's been great to catch up today. I mean, you were and remain a fantastic ambassador for our country. You had a dream and nothing and no one was going to stop you. And as we said, in an era of carefully cultured personal brands, you remain true to who you were, regardless of whether it aligned with popular opinion. You're a straight shooter on and off the court. We loved every minute of it. Thanks for joining us. All right, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Just jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.